So uh, tonight I'd like to talk about <clears throat> the continuum of sophistication to innocence. And I'm giving a series of talks uh, back in Seattle uh, on this particular subject, a number of continua, which is, happens to be the plural of continuum. I didn't know it before I started the series, but that's what it is. So it'd be like uh, from, the, from time to the timeless, or from contraction to love. And, and what I'm trying to show <clears throat> in these uh, series is that uh, we start off very much encased in a mental uh, presentation, a mental phenomenon. And what's essential for us to move forward is to move outside of that mental frame of reference. And so the endpoint of the continuum is a heart quality, is a quality that lives outside of the brain. <clears throat> and so uh, always uh, prior to this series, you know, my, my talks have uh, either been about topics in general or about particular uh, um, conditioned expressions of mind, like anything, greed, hatred, you know, or impatience, or all of those. But what I sense in giving those talks is it doesn't give enough of an overview of what's really going on. Uh, and the point of all of those talks is to see that the mental quality we are suggesting, say impatience, doesn't serve you in moving your practice forward. <clears throat> or whatever I'm speaking about. But it doesn't give you necessarily a way out of that. And the way most of us find a way out of the particular subject is to say, okay, well, impatience isn't a good quality. I'll, I'll condition a different quality in me that will offset this sense of patience. And whatever we condition in to offset whatever the topic is that I'm speaking about, is really another mental quality because we're conditioning in something to offset something we don't like about ourselves. But it doesn't give you a thorough enough understanding of what the problem is. The problem is conditioning. You see? So what I hope to show in, these, in this, this talk uh, and perhaps the next one is that there's an encasement problem, problem here. Uh, and I referenced uh, the uh, brain that I, uh, the series, six part series on the brain for PBS. I hope you get a chance to watch it because although it's not explicitly Dharma, it certainly shows you the effect of conditioning. It shows you what we know about what we are uh, from, a, from a, a neurological point of view. And it it just maps it all out. I mean, they have it all down now. You know, it's a, a, a electrochemical circuitry, and uh, I mean, it all all the data comes in through electrical uh, chemical uh, uh, responses, and that's somehow organized within this organ. It's not really in touch once it becomes electrical chemical response, which is what the senses uh, process it through it's no longer in touch with reality. So the processing component of it is all of this uh, data that's coming in from the neurological displays, 
being organized separately from reality in this thing called a brain, completely external to the actual events that's a, that are occurring. And it's organizing itself through a trillion uh, neurological connections into the map that we call reality. And it, this map is totally a conditioned thing. It's, it's a, it's a uh, okay, so I'm not a scientist, right? So the words aren't going to be, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just um, lines, really, of stimulation. And you, say, you, you sit back and you say, my God, you know, that's it. And he shows very explicitly how the sense of who we are, I, I, our identity, is built from all of this different processing, all of the different memories we've had. But it has nothing to do with external truth or any truth. It just has its own mapping quality. And what we perceive life to be is entirely our perception of it, not the truth of it. And what it did, uh, I mean, even though I knew all of that dharmically, there's some way when you, it comes in line with science that you go, oh, a piece falls in place. And you go, yeah, now it's all coming together, making complete sense what the problem really is. And it happens, you know, I suppose, at the speed of light, because that's how fast electricity travels. I don't know that for a fact, but however it organizes, it does it pretty quickly because we can converse and pick up objects and maneuver around. And so it's a fascinating organ. And the organ was originally cast this way in order to survive. That's its point. That's its purpose. He puts it and says, he says, he tries to make sense out of everything. That's That's the motivation of its circuitry, is to make sense of what it sees. In fact, you can distort certain aspects of the data, and it will readjust and still make sense out of that data coming in, even though the data itself is nonsensical. So you see... What, what it, it should help us get a sense of the problem here. That it's not just the fact that we're greedy, that we're impatient, that we're frustrated. I mean, we may pick those subjects out in terms of talks, but the problem is much broader than that. And unless we start seeing how we generate conditioned responses in relationship to the problem, we're not going to get out of this thing. We're going to have a better brain maybe that we can pass on. I don't even know if it's genetically evolving in that direction. But the point is, is that, we, that spiritually we have to see this issue from a very different perspective than just simply it's greed. you know. Because what does that do? You're still in your brain working out how not to be greedy. It doesn't, it doesn't end the conversation we're having with ourselves. And that's the other point is that you know, as all of this stuff is processed, the result of that is the conversation we have with ourselves. 
the conversation tries to put into words, which is really interesting because it's just electrical stimulation. I thought, now how can electrical stimulation form the words of thought? Well, then I thought, well, a telephone call is exactly the same thing, really. It's electrical stimulation and with words. So that gave me some kind of idea or something. But anyway, the point is <laughs> that the voice in our head is the product, is the part of the brain where we rest, where we authenticate, where we give uh, the command, command central. And that's where all of our focus goes for most of the day. It's, it's our governing voice. It gives us direction. It gives us history. It gives us perspective. It gives us meaning. It gives us something to do. It tells us what to do. And so this sense of being governed by this voice, this command central, and it's conditioned. It's just a part of the circuitry. I found that really interesting because what we try to do is to keep that voice going, you know, because that's us. Our identity mostly rests within that voice. And so our job, what we think our job is, is to keep that voice loud and as clear as it can be. But keep it loud because what happens to our identity if it goes silent? Which is what deep sleep is. It's the brain encasement, but just no noise, no conversation. And that's not freeing. So it's something besides just being encased without noise, although the noise is a central problem to the whole issue. And so, okay, so, you know, if you look at your life, you can see how much of it is around creating noise. Drama. Some of us love that. Extremes, pursuit of the extremes, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. Anything that's more complicated, it can't be simple. Simple's too simple. This thing has to be processed and understood and it has to be, you know, it has to be complicated, you know. And so when we filter the Dharma, which is a very simple thing, I hope people understand that through the voice in our heads, it gets very complicated. It gets very differentiated. There's a lot to do. You see? All of that's the mechanics of how this thing operates. It operates according to purpose and meaning. That's what its job is, is to make sense of life and to survive while it's doing that. So it has to feel the evaluation, judgment, and competition of other people who are trying to get the same ends. That's how you survive, is get the meat first. Right? You see? So I'm just setting up the problem here. That it's huge. Every sense door, everything we see, everything we think about. I just mentioned a couple, our identity, who we think we are. I mean, these are the, the amount of, of momentum that these conditioned neurological paths have within us. Our identity, for God's sake. What the world is when I look out of my eyes, what I take it to be. 
Whoa! You mean I'm being fooled? Our need for comfort, all conditioned, need for comfort, the aversive response Narayan was talking about last night, all of those are strategies of survival. all of our opinionation, everything. And when you, get, when, you, when you turn left, you turn right, you look up, you look down, and it's all the circuitry, you see. So now, you can under, also understand, this is an important point, why the brain has no relationship at all to the present. Because the present doesn't mean anything to the brain. It's the past and the future that mean something to the brain. What I have known about the present, or what the present has evolved into that I have to be afraid of will happen again. Not the pure present. The pure present is uninteresting to the brain. It doesn't provide any It doesn't provide any meaning in relationship to the context of my life. My context is where I've been and where I'm going. You see? That's time-driven. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about the tyranny of time. And we just stay on that format. We stay within the, the circuitry. We stay within the conditioning. We stay within our habit patterns. Wow, that's amazing. So... The extensiveness of that, plus the fact that the one thing that we thought would be, would alleviate the problem, which was being present, we find is very uninteresting. Don't you find the present uninteresting? I mean, see, we take the circuitry with the present. We try to be present. Me, be present in the present. I'm going to be present. We bring our circuitry, the mind, the brain, in the present. It doesn't find anything interesting in the present. It's bored. So now I'll go think about something else. I'll go back into my file cabinet here and bring something. Past memories or what I will become after I practice enough being present. Uh This is insanity. So I'm trying to take you to the point where you say, oh, I'm insane. And everything is known. Why is it known? Because the circuitry is telling us what everything is. Everything. Look around the room. Everything is known. You think everything is really known? Everything is what we think it is? Nothing is what we think it is. We think it into its isness. If you want proof, just look around. There it is. We're looking out of our conditioning onto the world covered with what has been. And we try to solve problems. This is a good one. Because the world is in constant movement. And knowledge is fixed, right? I learned it once. 
So we try to solve problems with our knowledge in a world that's in constant motion. Now try to do that. It worked once. That's when the knowledge <laughs> stuck. But then it never works again. It's always out of sync. And we keep trying to apply the same solutions to a world that is very vastly different. You see? Knowledge doesn't change. That's what you know. That's who you know Jim is. I'm going to treat him just as... Or I've been on retreat before. I know exactly what it's supposed to do. I know exactly what, how to... You don't know anything. We don't know anything. See, this is the plea of... The sophistication says it knows everything. Sophisticated mind is a mind that revels in its knowledge. As it's or, for its orientation and its status within that knowledge. And because it derives meaning from that status and from people who also are knowledge base, in honor of my knowledge base, I honor your knowledge base. And so we elevate them to the cathedrals of this generation, which are our universities. So you have to get a sense of the, of the extent of this problem, you see. It has, has to get into your bone marrow. We go, whoa, this is, this is really something here. I, I thought it was just my desire. I was supposed to give up my desire. And maybe I'll just be mindful because you see then I'll bring myself along with me and I can carry my identity within my mindfulness. So I'll just, I will be mindful. <clears throat> that way I can preserve myself. See, that's the bargaining chip. You see, when we start realizing that sophistication, the knowledge base of what we have and our identity and all of that is a part of what we don't want to give up, but we also see that it's what we have to give up, there comes a crisis point. So all these continua reach a crisis point. And only a few are willing to cross it. Because the threat of what life would be without what has been meaningful to us or how we have made sense of it feels like too big of a... That's too much to ask. That's too much to ask. Don't ask that of me. So let's play with it a little bit. And I don't mean to ridicule this because we all do it. But so we'll bring ourselves along in our attempt to be spiritual. And what happens in that, because it's still encased a brain, it's a brain decision and a brain conditioning, we go to self-beautification. We try to make ourselves, our character, nicer, prettier, better looking, healthier, sane, and that's the whole health movement of today is really all of that. Not that it's 
not a good movement. I don't, I'm not, it's just not a freeing movement. It's not ultimately freeing. You see, at some, at some age, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it may well, if you stay on in the meditation, is that freedom begins to really, as, as you age, freedom begins, you know, this is what you want out of life now. It, it gets so deeply in one because you spend time looking at the possibilities of staying within your conditioning, and they aren't satisfying. They're always torturous. They're always a struggle. There's always conflict if you stay within the circuitry. And the circuitry itself are in, in competition to one another up here. It's, it's, it's not smooth. The sense of I is weighing in on the other expressions of mind and those two things the I wants something different than what is being expressed a different reality than what is being expressed the I the I that thinks it's outside of the mind is really a part of the mind and so it's two sections of the mind divided and in tension with each other and we think if we can just satisfy the I then the tension will go away but the I itself is built upon that tension it exists because of the tension So it doesn't get less of a struggle as you self-aggrandize or self-whatever. See, I love to be taken to a point where you can't move. I love that. You see, that's, if any of you have ever been addicted to something and you have found recovery from that addiction, there's a point in which you can't move. The old life is dead. And you don't care what. You don't care how hard the new life is you're going there. That's where the spiritual journey takes us. We try to make it reasonable for a while. We try to find something in there salvageable. It's like going through your attic, you know, and you have three generations of clothes up there, and, well, maybe my grandmother's aunt's slippers still work. Nothing fits in this attic. And at that point, now this is, this is really, at the point in which you cannot move, dead stop. No more struggle. This can't be willed. 
It can't be forced. It has to be seen where you see I can't move. Anything I do is just more of me acting within this circuitry. I can't move. There's nothing I can do for my salvation. I can't do this. It's that kind of desperation. And then there's stop. And it's very quiet. And it all opens. It's like it's been waiting for us to stop. Not new tricks. Not a new conditioning. I'll offset this pattern with this, and I'll do that for this, and I'll substitute this for that, and I'll become better at this. Not that one. Dead stop. In Dante's Inferno, above the entrance, it is written, all ye who enter, give up all hope of ever leaving. And of course, most of us read that, oh damn, I've got to stay in here forever. No, that's the way out. You give up all hope, all systems, all encouragement. You give up all conditioning. And that's the way out. And it's like a breath of air. It's like that. Quiet. Now the forms of life take on a whole different perception because we're not seeing through the mind's display. It's not configured in terms of safety and struggle. The perceptual shift, there is a perceptual shift, and it is no longer looking through the eyes. It's a scene beyond vision. And all of these forms are still available to be understood and to be interacted with and to be encouraged. And hi, John, I remember you last year. Yeah, hi, are you? You know that. And you know your name and you know your identity and you can pull out your ID if you're stopped by the police and all of that. And yet everything has changed. And now, rather than being betrayed by the brain, because the brain, you see, is just, even though it's very fast, it's still a couple of milliseconds behind the immediacy of the present. It's taking it all in, flashing it, developing a scenario, and then conversation. All of that takes a few milliseconds. And so we're always right, it's always, we're just just behind the present, looking in at the next moment as we process the previous one. And we, 
So then when we act, we're still acting in a kind of lag time. And that's the reason that some of us feel, or many of us feel, that you're kind of outside of life looking in at it, that you're not really there, because it's those few milliseconds you're not. But when we're quiet, first sense how close that stillness is. Because there's the escape latch. And your body, it's a bodily felt sense. And something vast, but not experiential. You see, how could it be experiential? It would just be circuitry. But something based in your, our being a resonant with being itself. Sounds, any words just don't get to the experience. And so I, oh, God, this is so simple. This is so simple. Where have I been? But the price, the price of admission is your sophistication. You have to give it up. And the innocence that awaits allows us to walk through this moment. least we become like little children. And then I think, what is all that? What has all that stuff been about? All of those, you know, do 50 of this and, and all of that, all of the different rituals. And see, it has no bearing really. It was preparatory. It's like learning to read has really nothing about going through college, but it prepares you for college. And all of the systems that we use here are really to make that transition fluid, like integrity. You see, there's... Truth is not absent from a criminal. It's just that they're so self-centered. They're so, their gaze cannot lift from what their needs are that they can't ever stop given a criminal mind. It's not, they're not further from the truth. So integrity 
is an orientation that allows this opening to occur because there's no, you have, you have established easy relationships, basically, is what integrity does. You see, it's not held back from anyone or anything. What kind of truth would that be? It's just that the nature of our lives either access it because the quality of the states of mind are easier to release, like calm, like tranquility, like patience. Whereas if the voice gets louder and louder in our heads, it's very hard to see that that's just a voice in our head. And we get stuck. And the more disingenuous we are, the louder the voice. So that's an important aspect of the whole thing. But you never forget the quiet, you see. Because in the beginning, the innocence, the not knowing, the simplicity of life, just as it is, just before I knew all about it. Now, this is important because it's not that you forget what you have known. It's that you quiet what you have known. When you don't care about what you've known as being the prominent representation of your life, then it quiets itself. It falls back in relief. You can still bring it out. You can still bring it forward. But it's not prominent anymore. So some people are afraid that they would lose their relationship. There's all kinds of egoic concerns that we have about what it means to live outside of the brain. What it means to live outside of the brain is that we are quiet. If that means nothing to you, that says a certain thing about your relationship to the noise that is you. We have to be kind of sick of this thing. It doesn't give us any new advice. It doesn't set us in a proper direction. It's just projected, projected pain body, really. Areas of tension in ourselves that we disassociate from and project onto others. And then claim the judgment of that other. And somehow, we all agree to do that. Somehow we all submit to that. To live in within the hell of our own creation. But with innocence, 
you begin to access the sacred. We begin to see or sense something much more bountiful than the limitation of our own habit pattern. You sense in stillness access. You sense a different world arising. You sense the quiet of time. And you rest. And when we are called to do something functional, we do it. Because all of the toolbox is still very much there, very much available to us. And you sense a natural order. A natural order. And you begin to get this, whether your practice is being driven by conditioning or it's being suggested through the discerning awareness. You get a sense of, of what is leading your practice. Because if I said, we all have to be quiet, what the brain does is say, okay, now I've got to be quiet. And it tries to force that will of quietude upon a brain that doesn't know how to be quiet. And that causes struggle and turmoil. It doesn't cause quiet. It causes repression. And that's how the brain tries to handle itself. But if I suggest being quiet from the base of awareness, then it leaves the brain alone. It doesn't try to configure quiet from new circuitry. It simply holds what is already there. That's real quiet. So if you want a fast way out of the hindrances that Narayan mentioned, don't try to figure out how not to be sleepy. See if there's something in the room that's not sleepy that knows that you are. then you're quiet with sleepiness. And we don't struggle with it. Although I want to say that for some of you who are newer to practice, coming or reaching that point usually takes some time of struggle before you have bottomed out in that attempt to try to find your cures within the conditioning references of your mind. So don't begrudge where you are. Go through where you are. Just learn as quickly as you can, whether this is a successful or unsuccessful venture you're, you're engaged in. No one is out of place in what they are doing. I'm not suggesting that you change tactics. Just listen to the problem. Listening and understanding the problem will have its own effect upon you. It will move you forward in its time. If you try to move forward in your time, you'll create more difficulty for yourself. 
you will try to do it, and it cannot be done by you. It can only be seen. It cannot be done. And so we're left with that, you see. I don't know how many of you came for that. If you didn't, then keep moving in the direction that you're intending for your life. That's fine. And you will take it to the point in which it no longer serves you, and then you'll change direction. That's how it works. But for a few of you who are, then let's move together, because the Earth needs us now. The species needs us now. It doesn't need moderated clarity. It needs absolute clarity. Okay. Can we just sit for a minute or two? Let nothing disturb the stillness. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.